If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Martha Washington in her time. It's hard to imagine any person suddenly becoming a widow and not folding under the pressure of managing 300 slaves and 17,000 acres. But that is exactly what Martha Washington did. She brashly told her English vendors that they would be dealing with her and whipped them into shape quickly. This can-do attitude served her well when the soldiers in the country needed a mother to smooth out the edges of a vicious war of attrition that led to the building of a brand new nation. A nation that, as she said, would not be led by a monarch born into his position, but instead by those who were capable and earned the right to lead. I see. So some of those guys were scoundrels, and they're thinking, oh my gosh, I need to go talk. The ones who were asking... The ones who were asking to manage the monies, not in business, not as a husband, those I was more skeptical of. Boy, that makes sense. All of your children with Daniel Custis, they all have the same mm-hmm. middle name, Park. They what do. What is the reason, reason for that? Well, they would not be able to inherit if they did not have the name Park. It was Colonel Custis's father who had instilled that or written it in his will, that to have any chance at inheritance, Park had to be part of their name. He just Colonel had to Custis have his stamp father. on those kids, didn't he? Well, it is one way to ensure that the name survives. That's interesting. Because so you, the girls, as well as the boys, have it. Yeah, I saw that. They're, all their middle names are Park, and that's what it was. It had to do with the inheritance. Yes. Did he try to... Well, he tied it to the inheritance. I... My guess is that he was afraid that the name Park would die out, and that was his way. But where I did not know the man, I cannot speculate further. Okay. You had said that when your first husband's father died, that's I'm mixing it up right now, but that's Colonel Custis, right? Yes, it is. When he died, your first husband was relieved because the man was just too much to bear. He wasn't a rational man at all and prone to fits of anger and could be violent at times, liked to throw things. The stories I hear about their marriage, about Daniel's parents' marriage, is frightening. Really? Yeah. Well, thank goodness General Washington was nothing like that. Well, this is Daniel's parents. Daniel was gentle, very gentle. He did not inherit his father's pension for rage. Was Daniel, was he a good man? I mean, I know nothing about Daniel. Oh, he he was a very good man. He wanted nothing more, once we were married, to, again, like like General Washington, to just be at home with his family, managing his properties, and that's what we were raised to do. He was a quiet man. He did like social. He liked the balls and to be out in Williamsburg. But he did not have enormous ambition other than business. He did not seek to travel or 
grow his social circle beyond his Virginia world. He was just content, wanted to live his life. and Very content, and we were so happy. We dealt with quite a bit of loss in a very short amount of time. And he was gentle and loving and attentive. I could not ask for more. Did General Washington know him? Yes, he did. did. Again, when people come together for balls and other gatherings and House of Burgesses and in Williamsburg, everyone knows one another. Let me let me go to your talk about your parents for a moment. So, you obviously grew up where your parents taught you, or your mother specifically taught you, how to have that hospitality that Virginians have. And your parents didn't have 300 slaves like the Custises did. You had quite a few less, right? Oh, very much less. We were not of the same social standing as the Custises. I read once that it was like 10 or 20 or something like that. I can't remember the number. And I, I may even be way off. Your parents, you had said earlier that your parents were, that you were very close to your parents. Or I'm sorry, very. that your parents were very close. They were. And you had eight children in your family, of which we've established you were the oldest, thank God. And your father was a good man? A very good man. I heard once that your father had a child with one of his slaves. Do you know anything about that? I believe you are referring to Anne Dandridge. I am. Yes. Yes. We were brought up together. Is she... Was she considered your sister? We were quite close being raised in the same household and I would look to her as a confidant but not too close of a confidant. My closest sister was Nancy. She passed in 77. I miss her greatly. That loss was hard. She had been ill for a few months and just declining steadily. I had taken her boys in to have the inoculation And they were at my home for a month while they were recovering from that. I returned them to her. And then just a month later, she was gone. The amount of death that you have had to be around in your life. I have to be honest with you, Mrs. Washington. When I started this conversation, I was expecting you to be just a mess just crying all the time mm-hmm. the first time that I mentioned any of this because you outlived your children and you had these family members that passed along. And then, of course, in the war, by its nature, there is death everywhere. Mentally, how do you handle this? I mean, how do you deal with it? That's a good question. I do believe that the greatest part of our happiness depends upon our dispositions and not our circumstances. Yet. There are times that I cannot pull myself out of the memories and the feelings that come with those memories. And if I allow myself to dwell too much on them, I cannot get out of bed. After Patsy died, I could not even go to her funeral. I could not get out of bed. The general was so concerned for my well-being that some days, And he rides out every single day to check on the five farms. He would either drag me to my horse and take me riding with him, or he would even, on days where I was a puddle, 
he would stay home with me just following her passing. I am not sure that if I had anything other than a love marriage and a true partnership that he that it would have been tolerated or allowed. And I'm not sure that tolerated and allowed are the right words to use in terms of grief and loss, but I am filled with greater affection and greater appreciation for my husband for the way that he responded to my grief. When Daniel died, my husband Daniel, not my oldest child Daniel, when he died, I did not allow myself to grieve. There was not really an opportunity to allow that. It was if my brain broke. I had already buried two children before Daniel's passing. Wow. And I really could not understand what was going on. So I did not even allow myself to go there. I dealt with the things that needed to be done, and I found comfort in lists and in doing concrete tasks that needed to be done, such as ordering a coffin and the things that went along with a funeral. It was as if I had turned off a part of my brain and only functioned in a different way. And then a week later, I was sitting down and writing to London to take over the business. I mean, you really didn't, I, you, you didn't have a choice. You had to get to work. I didn't have a choice. Now, I truly could have. I could have allowed some of the lawyers who were offering their services to come in and take over. I could have done that. But I knew much of what was going on in the business. And I suppose that as a little bit of time had passed, I could visit little bits in my brain. I could go back and think a bit, which would paralyze me, but I could find my way out of it. I'm not sure if I'm making sense because I'm discussing something that I really have not shared with anyone. You're actually making a lot of sense. Oh, my heart is pounding from this conversation. <laughs> well, let me ask Almost some... as if it was yesterday. I've been married for a long time, and I can understand what you're saying because as men, we have a tendency that... Sometimes we let these things go and just move on. Even if we're sad, it's just, I don't know if we're wired that way. We never forget. But mm. it seems like a woman is more likely to take these scars and they just they keep them. They're always there. And you just always have to learn there. how to deal with it. You do. But there are sometimes things that happen that, that you're back there instantly. When the general takes ill or when, oh, when Jackie was ill. Instantly, you assume the worst, and you're not starting at a place of innocence anymore. You're starting at a place of grief, which if you're looking at a staircase, innocence is the, the bottom step, and grief is the top step. You're starting there, so you're falling over the edge so quickly. Wow, what a great metaphor. Well, I'm gonna add, we're talking about some pretty heavy stuff right now, so I'm going to add a little bit of levity because I don't, want you, I don't want to ruin your day here. And so I asked a bunch of people that I know, because people are curious who you are. I asked them to what they would like 
to know about you. And some of my friends and acquaintances had some very simple questions that I was kind of curious about too. And it is less, way less serious than what we're talking about right now. So I'm going to... Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. As I told you, I can get lost in it very easily. Well, forgive me because I do probably have some tough questions that I want to ask you about still, but I've got to ask these questions or these people will never forgive me. So what is your favorite food? Wow, I do have a sweet tooth. There's a new drink that we've been having is chocolate in the mornings, and I am quite a fan of that. But for food, my favorite. Is the drink hot I or is it cold? It is hot. Hot chocolate. It is. We just need to call it chocolate, but that. yes, that is a descriptive name for sure. Yes. And your favorite animal, somebody asked me that, but I think I already know what that's going to be. Who, what would you say for that? Well, it is not the general's hounds, that is for sure. Oh, those, they cause such a ruckus. I have a cockatoo that I am quite fond of. Really? I would have guessed that your favorite animal would have been a horse. So you have a, a bird that you like. Well, I thought you were talking about in my home. But yes, horses are, you can communicate with a horse that you don't need words. And I found horses to be very helpful in my healing. But I thought you were asking about my favorite animal in the house. You can't communicate with a bird, though. They're just a mess and they make all kinds of noise. What do you like about your bird? She can say some words, which are quite fun. Wow, that is, that's a smart bird. Yes, yes. So do you have a favorite book? Every morning, I spend time with my favorite book, which is the Bible. It brings me comfort. And sometimes I don't think that I am understanding the words necessarily because they're so ingrained in my brain. But reading the words are a meditation unto themselves. And that brings me peace. How many times would you say, if you read that every morning, you have to have gone through the Bible several times, how many times would you say you've read through it from start to finish? I don't know that I could answer that because sometimes I will turn to my favorite passages or reread something because I didn't feel that I was paying enough attention the day before. It, oh, I cannot even imagine. I have never stopped to count on that. And, there's always inspiration in there. You read the same passage once and then you read it again and it's either better or it's different. And it lands differently depending upon what is going on in my life. Yeah, no, I can see that. So was there a favorite gift that George or General Washington gave you in your life or something that stands out? I am quite fond of a watch that I have not just for its practicality, but it is quite lovely. And he is constantly improving upon Mount Vernon, which is a gift that is always changing. Is he hardworking all the time? I mean, from our view, it just looks like he's the most productive, industrious person with a great attitude. When you said he had a temper, that surprised me. I mean, does he have any flaws? Oh, well, I don't suppose that would be a very wifely thing for me to do to divulge many of his faults, but I did share about his temper. Faults. Oh, he is punctual no matter what. Really? No matter what. Yes. He will come across, if he is late to dinner, and he is not late to dinner, but in his mind, he is going to be late for dinner. 
he will come galloping up to the house in such a fashion and throw the reins and run in to change. He's so busy attending to all the things that need to be done. He loves order. He loves expectations being met, his expectations being met. He relies upon that to maintain control in his life, in his home. And I suppose that could be looked at as a fault or positive trait. So you're saying that he is a perfectionist? He certainly is. Interesting. Does General Washington procrastinate ever? Not that I have noticed. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't sound like it. (laughs) No, no. And we have been married 26 years now, so I would think I should notice by now. Yeah, I think you would have seen something. And believe me, there's no signs on our side either, that's for sure. Do you have a favorite memory with General Washington so far? The night that the general and I officially met, and he was Colonel Washington at the time, and we knew of each other. We had been in the same circles in Williamsburg. I had taken the children to visit my neighbors, the Chamberlains, and there was definitely matchmaking afoot because Mr. Chamberlain arrived home with Colonel Washington in tow, and he was a hero at this point, Colonel Washington. Washington. Colonel Washington, okay. Yes, and such a tall figure, especially on a horse, and the reddish-brown hair, blue eyes, He caught my attention. When I was married to Daniel, my attention was not wandering, but now, very much so. Okay. After dinner, we were in the parlor, and the children were all about, and Jackie decided that he was going to climb Colonel Washington like his own personal tree. Now, I was gently reminding Jackie to mind his manners and his mama, and to not climb Colonel Washington, who was very tall to this little three-year-old. Right. And Colonel Washington was so kind and gentle with him that my attention was greatly increased. And Patsy, she was toddling about. She really was not as steady on her feet yet as her brother. But... I could see just a snippet of what a family life might be like with him. And my mind started to go to that place. Once the children had gone to sleep, we continued talking in the parlor that night and talked and talked. There was some gossip in there, (laughs) but not too much. Gossip? Scandalous. A bit. (laughs) We did know a lot of the same people. Right. But... We did get to know one another to the point where we felt that another meeting would be enjoyable to both of us. And when I think back to that night, you're asking my favorite memory, and I feel this warmth in my chest. And it's the same feeling I felt that evening. And it's a beautiful feeling to remember and revisit. And I thank you for that. I love this story. I can just picture... General Washington and Jackie just climbing all over his six-foot-whatever frame. So was he generally good with kids? Because it doesn't seem like he's putting on a show for you. Not at all. He was a wonderful papa. Wonderful. 
And now with the grandchildren, he always has a sweet in his pocket for them. Does he? He does. And he's just really getting to know them because he's only been home a few months. He's been gone so long and they really don't know him. But sweets in his pocket make him much more attractive to them. That solves a lot of problems with kids and adults. (laughs) Doesn't it? It sure does. This is just another one of those areas where, you know, as you tell this story, it's so hard to find the flaws in him. I mean, he manages to be able to lead the roughest of the roughest men. He can sit in a room and he can be political and diplomatic with the brilliant men of your time and you put him in front of a kid he can just immediately switch gears and it's no problem at all for that kid to be climbing all over him i'm guessing if the rules were reversed and it wasn't his child but that kid had climbed up colonel custis he probably would have oh, that would him down. not have gone well that would <laughs> not have gone well at all but he never did meet his grandchildren so who's to know if that would have been the south to his wound who would have known? Yeah, yeah. You can only imagine. So after you and General Washington met and you guys sat and talked, and what did your courting look like after that? What happened next? Oh, not very much. He did come to visit me at White House, and my sister and brother-in-law were visiting at the time. He came just a few months later. And then the rest of it was by letter, by correspondence. He had left to go to the frontier again, and we communicated only through letters. This was not a situation, though, where we were so concerned for interception and feelings could be shared in a way that allowed us to know that this was what we wanted for our future, was to be joined in marriage. But most of that communication was letters still, huh? Well, he was at the frontier. He wasn't home to to come over for supper. Right. Quick ride home for supper. 400-mile oh. ride home for supper each night, right? be a little difficult, I would think. Yeah. You had said that he came to the White House. That's an, I don't know a lot about the White House, but the White House is an interesting name in our time, which I can't tell you what that is, but what is the White House? White House is... Daniel Custis is in my home, the name of our plantation. Oh, that's where you and Daniel Custis live. live. Oh. Yes. Well, if you, and that was the property that you inherited, the White House. It is. Just White House plantation. Oh, just White House, not the White House. Right. And, and there are many White Houses in our neighborhood. I would not presume to call it the White House. Okay. But the White House plantation, yes. Okay, White House Plantation. And the name, where did it come from? Because that's not a family name, is it? No, not at all. I am not sure where it came from. I never gave it much thought. Does it have anything to do with black and white? Not that I am aware of. Oh, all right. I didn't know. Well, General Washington had made a promise to you. You said this earlier. And he made a promise that uh, he was so glad to be home and the war is over and now he wants to take Mm -hmm. care of Plantation. And that he's done in public life. So done. <laughs> yes. He had enough. He has. Because prior to the war, he was at the Continental Congresses. And so he was away then. It is very good to have him home. But do you believe that he's going to be able to keep that promise? And the reason I say is 
we're kind of in the early stages of the creation of our country. And if you were that to look true. Yeah, if you were to look at the most important people in the nation right now, I mean, who's the first three that come to mind? George Washington, General George Washington is certainly one of them. Who are the first other two that come to mind? Most important people. Oh, in relation to the forming of our country? Yep. Where are you I, I would right think, oh, Mr. Jefferson yep. and Mr. Hamilton. There's so many. General Green, he was so instrumental to strategy. And General Knox, there's so many people that we could call upon to take the reins. It what does not you? always have to be just one person. Well, yeah, there's, believe me, with the work that needs to be done, there is need. What, what would you say if they were to call General Washington and say, we need your help making this? You're the most important person in our country. I mean, what would your reaction be? Do you recall when I referred to a confrontation that I had with the general over a gift that I was not allowed to accept? I'm feeling that vibe coming back. There may be another confrontation. In the bedchamber? Or conversation, shall we say. Strongly worded conversation. There's only so much that a man can give to his country. Oh, and, and he's given that. He has. And if you cannot be a leader that raises up other people to be leaders, then really are you a good leader? That's interesting. Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, at some point, you got to hand the reins over and say, okay, I've done everything I can. Now, you guys see what you can do from here. Yeah, that's I think it would be too much like a monarchy should he seek to, oh, I don't think control would be the right word, but to be in charge of the shaping and future. I suppose I could be wrong on that front as well, but... Well, you had mentioned the term monarchy, and that's interesting because when you think of the monarchy in England, that's what we were fighting against. That's what we wanted out for under. Yeah. And However, we do not seek that at all. Who was the king? Was it George the Third? George. Yeah. Is, yeah. So King George is not a good guy, and he does not really care about how many people he has to throw in front of musket balls to get what he wants. And, but General Washington isn't like that. General Washington is a good man who is empathetic to those that are wounded and need help. He is a leader amongst those that could lead. He is he, great with children. He is. Why wouldn't he be a great monarch? He would be a wonderful leader, but a monarch is born to it, and they are entitled to it. Could he be a great king? I would. A king, again, is born to it and entitled to it. It is not something that our newfound country seeks. Yeah. We want someone to lead us who deserves it and can prove that they have in mind the greatest good of the country and not that they are in charge because that is their God-given role. I see. It's all about you earn it instead of it's handed to you. It's passed down through generations. Exactly. You know, 
You'll have to forgive me, Mrs. Washington, if I am making you, creating some angst in you, because whether he would be a good king or emperor or leader or any of those things, it is clear in your tone of voice that it is the last thing that you want. The very last thing. We would like to stay home at Mount Vernon in domestic felicity for the remainder of our retirement. And I don't mean retirement in that we are sitting back and doing nothing during our days. We have taken our two youngest grandchildren in to raise, and we are looking forward to giving them and our family our attention. There is so much to be done. Yeah, for sure. And we're both going to hope that you get exactly what you want because you certainly deserve it. You both have sacrificed enough. And yet, as the new country is about to be created, I would not be surprised if you found yourself in the situation that you have found yourself in many times, which is that battle between what you want to do and what your duty (laughs) might be. Because I think that our lives have been determined by duty versus inclination. What we would like to do is always overruled by what we must do. Can you expand on that? I can. The general, as his greatest love is to be home at Mount Vernon with me, with his stepchildren who are no longer here, his step-grandchildren, and just to live a simple life. However, that is not what the country needed when he decided to go off to war. He knew in his letter to me in June of 75 when he was going to take command at Cambridge camp, he knew what that was going to do to me. And I think I shared that with you earlier, that he wrote to Jackie and he wrote to my sister and he tried to put supports in place for me, but he knew that the greater good of our country, it was untenable to continue, well, the Continental Congress had determined that, and that it was time to pursue independence, and that he, because of his nature and getting people to come to the table, it was his duty to lead these efforts, even though he would prefer to be at home. I can see what you're saying, because... When you think about all the time that you were away from home and you just want to be at home and yet here you are a woman and I know you're six feet tall and solid muscle. Did I get that right? I come up not even to the general's armpit. I am, oh, someone had told me once I was vertically challenged. (laughs) Vertically challenged, is that right? Are you behind that? I have heard that. I am. So I do have a lovely pair of shoes that do add an inch to my height or an inch and a half to my height, and then a new bonnet, which is so high, oh, it extends me to his shoulder. <laughs> so between your shoes and your bonnet, you're adding another six inches, huh? Oh, yes. It's interesting <laughs> Everything just, I can do. It really is yes. fascinating what you were just talking about, how your, your whole life has been driven by duty. And it just has to be so frustrating because you want to be at home and you want to be enjoying what you have. And yet you're, he's back and forth. Well, not, he's not back and forth. He's just there. And then you're back and forth. 
you're back and forth constantly and it all has to do with what can we do with the country? What can we do with the soldiers? I mean, at some point, I can hear it in your voice, you just have to feel like, look, I know that we all have our duty, but we've done ours enough already. We have. And to go back to the point where I was discussing fear, that plays into duty as well. Because if I allowed fear to be my inclination to stay home, I would never have gone to join him in camp. I had never left Virginia. I was 44 years old before I went on such a journey. And while my life has been spent by rivers, all different sorts of rivers, from the Pamunkey to now the Potomac, I like them from the banks. I don't necessarily like to be upon them. Okay. I'm a bit afraid of traveling upon the water. And so, so that's your fear, being on the water? It, well, one of my fears, yes. But traveling involves going upon the water or traveling for weeks at a time in a carriage over because it was in November and raining and mud and terrible roads. And you never know where you're going to be sleeping next. And there is a lot of uncertainty in that and trusting that Providence will get you to your destination. And I knew that the general was waiting for me and that did keep me going. But my inclination was to stay home and not go on this journey. That terrified me. That first journey, though, I did have Jackie and Nellie with me, which helped. Are you a person who craves security? I am. I like routine. I like predictability, which my life certainly has not been this far. None of those things. No. So I crave it. The most security that you have had in your life up until this point, it appears, well, at least with General Washington, was the fact that you were Mrs. Washington because there's nobody that's going to mess with you. Well, you would like to think that. <laughs> what, what is, I mean, you've lived this extraordinary life. Well, what is your greatest accomplishment so far? My greatest accomplishment, I should like to say my children, and they were wonderful for as long as I had them, but now I think it is my nurturing sense, and that is probably why I thought to say my children first. I have nurtured my siblings. I then nurtured my children. I now nurture my grandchildren and my nieces and nephews, but I also would like to think that I nurtured those poor boys and men in the army and was a warm face of home for times when it was very difficult. And I would think that might be, well, we were victorious, so I should like to think that would be my contribution and accomplishment. The soldiers were lucky to have you, that's for sure. You had mentioned two hounds and I'd like mm. to ask you about them. You had said something about your George's General Washington's hounds. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Well, you said two, but there are many more than two. There was an incident that just occurred, and I was quite embarrassed by it, but the general found it most amusing. Please I continue. Had not, I had not checked on one of the courses prior to dinner. I had come downstairs and... For whatever reason, I had been distracted. There's been so many comings and goings since he has arrived home that I find I am distracted very easily. 
And I missed checking on one course. And as we were sitting there, the meat courses are being served and there was no ham. So I turned to Frank and I inquired after the ham. And he informed me and the general that the ham had been plated and it was ready to be served. And Vulcan arrived in the kitchen, Vulcan being the general's hound, and proceeded to eat the ham fully. Oh, that I probably didn't more- go over well. I was mortified. Completely, I believe my mouth hung open. So what did you do? And the general, well, I did nothing. The general laughed and laughed. And because his hounds are his babies, they can do no wrong. I don't, they will not be back in my house. (laughs) They will be banned from the house from now on. Not if it's up to him. They will be banned from the house. (laughs) It's not up to him. On. It is not up to him. No. So when I said two hounds, I said that intentionally because there's another hound, and uh, from my understanding, and that would be, how do you feel about Alexander Hamilton? Well, he is a human, not a dog. Okay. But I heard that you had some feelings about him. The general is quite fond of him, quite fond, and looks to him as a son. Are they that close? They have been. They have drifted apart a bit. But yes, they were at one time. You had mentioned earlier the Marquis de Lafayette. Do you know anything Mm. about him? I know that the general misses him great. And he has sailed, when was it? I believe it was December of 81. So I was still in mourning. And when he left to go back to France, the general just wrote to him at the beginning Where are we? We are the 19th. I believe he wrote to him just the beginning of the month. I know he misses him greatly. And I know that now the general is home. He can return to a regular correspondence with him. They discuss so many things other than just the war regarding the enslaved population situation. It comes from conversations with General Lafayette. That's where some of his change of heart comes from. Because General Lafayette, the French general, he sounded like a very wise man for his age. For his age, yes. I was going to say he's more a boy than a man. Yeah. His time here serving has matured him greatly. But he was raised with a very different worldview growing up in France. He is of the elite there. And as we are of the elite here. But you made reference earlier to the fact that other countries do this without enslaved servants. We have not had that experience of being able to run our lives without enslaved servants. And these are new concepts to try to embrace. I believe my husband is further along in these thoughts than I am. And that may be because of the things that I have to manage in the household. I think if I should not like to put words in his mouth and maybe I should not speak on it. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. It may be easier to accomplish this with field hands, this, gradual emancipation that I had heard discussed or a change from enslaved to hired. It may work more for field hands 
than it would in the household. But it's hard to even imagine I, that for you, isn't it? It is very hard to imagine. We do not have, or we did not until the war, have cash necessarily to pay for hired hands because our commerce, our business was done where we would send our tobacco over to London and they would put a price on it. We could not sell it for cash here. And what was the deal about that? I heard something like you would send them something and they would send you nothing. Or was, Tell me what that <laughs> well, looked like. Yes, it's oh, so interesting, which is why I was so firm with the factors when I took over for Daniel because as a woman, they would think they could take more advantage of me as they did with Daniel. So we would send over our tobacco. And with the tobacco would be letters explaining how much and what we thought might be an appropriate price. And you would send this to they England always, is what we're talking about. We would okay. to, London. to London. And Mr. Carey was one of the factors that we dealt with. And he, we would also send a shopping list because we weren't allowed to buy things here. We would order tombstones for Daniel, for my husband, but before that for baby Daniel and baby Frances. Well, she was four, not such a baby. But, and we would order everything. Shoes, gowns, stays. Of course, I'm talking about fabric again. But they would send what they wanted, household goods. And that was something that they would always send something that was not of the top standard. They would send their second best or their third best, and we really had no recourse because... Well, they kept the best for themselves. Of course they did, and what could we do? It would take three weeks to a month for it to cross the ocean to get to us, and what would we do? Write back and say, I'm so sorry, this does not work for us. It's terrible, and they'll say, you have it. There you are. <laughs> There's nothing that we could do. So once in a while, we would be lucky. When I ordered a gown for my wedding to the general, that was quite lovely. Now, maybe the person who provided it knew it was for a wedding and had some sentiment in that. So I received a beautiful gown. But, and my shoes, the purple shoes, oh, those were lovely. So I do think that the person who provided them had sentiment. But we had a carriage arrive one time, the general and I did. And upon the first outing with it, the wheel fell off. And the general wrote to London and was told it must have happened on the ship. There's nothing that is our responsibility. Nothing they could do, and now it was ours to deal with. I don't even understand why you take the time to write the letter. Because the letter's going to take, well, I don't know, weeks or a month. And then they write something back, which is another week or a month. At, some, at that point, you've just fixed it yourself, haven't you? Yes, but maybe they would put a credit on our account that we could oh. put towards something else. Yeah, but that didn't happen. It's not as if we would send the carriage back over the ocean. <laughs> right. But there may be a credit on our account that we could use towards a future purchase. Gosh. When you think about the cost and the difficulty of fighting for freedom. This is just one little thing. I mean, a broken wheel on a carriage or you getting secondhand goods doesn't make any sense. But I mean, this was just the way that the British treated the colonists. 
Like what exactly. they want didn't matter. And nobody would tolerate that. Not for any length you of time. You have a good understanding of the situation. It really, thank you. It really is all about a whole bunch of little things like this and so adding up, I'm guessing. Mrs. Washington, I've really in, enjoyed your time. You've brought up so you've, you brought up so many interesting things. I wanted to ask you when you were talking about the Marquis de Lafayette, the G- General Lafayette. It sounds like General Washington had a lot of respect for him, but I am under the understanding that General Lafayette named one of his children in France George Washington. Yes. Does he the has. General, in your time does General Washington know about that? He does. He does. He also, the Greens have named their first two children, George Washington Green and Martha Washington Green. Oh, is that right? The Greens did as well? They did. There's a whole bunch of George and Martha's wandering around in your time. It is not as important for me. It means so much to me. But for the general, who has had no children of his own, Sired by him. To have children named for him is an honor that cannot be exceeded. What an honor, too. And I'm guessing that had to be... Is that something that he managed well, or was that just something... Was it always a thorn in his side? And both of you... What? The fact that he never had children of his own? Yes. Well, again, providence. Providence is really what divines our life and I often wonder if he had sired children of his own could he have done the things that he did would his attentions have been elsewhere and not able to give to his newfound country during the shaping of it that he would have needed to do what a, that is so accurate because for a man and a woman the two of you Literally giving your all. There was no more to give. I got to tell you, the what you just said is so profound because you're absolutely right. Had he, had you had more kids, and had he been able to sire more kids, he may not have been able to do everything that needed to be done. And who knows? Maybe we would all be British colonists driving around with broken carriages and, and secondhand goods and being second-rate citizens. And so it's just another one of those sacrifices. I mean, very much related to the duty, maybe. It is, but it was not of his doing. Yeah. We wanted more children. We just were never gifted more children. Well, we don't argue with yes. Providence, do we? We cannot. Well, we can, but where will it get us? That's exactly right. Mrs. Washington, I'm so thankful for your time today. There's so many people that will listen to this and will want to hear how you felt about things. And this has really opened up my eyes to the person that you are. Is there anything that you would like to say to the people listening to this? Any last words you'd like to say? I am humbled and pleased to hear that our good names have continued on and that my husband's efforts have been recognized. I am still a bit uncertain about the information you shared with me that we have long lives ahead of us. I am pleased to hear it, but a little unsettled by the fact that it's such a thing. It's a little different being on that side, isn't it? It's very different. Well, very there different. is there is good to come, and uh, there will be challenges like there always have been, but Providence will take you exactly where you need to be, and that'll be enough. I do I hope that is the case. 
I thank you so much for your time today, and I wish you both great health. I thank you, sir, and I wish the same for you and your family. Martha mentioned that she would often find herself in bed for several days when the worries of her life had overwhelmed her. Although she spent nearly half the war in battlefield camps supporting her husband and the troops, in the end, after giving her heart and soul to the country and the people she loved, she was the last one to die. Outliving all of her children and her first and second husband, she closed the second floor bedroom and moved her things to the third floor of Mount Vernon, where she spent most of her time in seclusion, suffering from a life lived hard and from illness. She had nothing left to give. Although the end of her life must have been tormenting, because she gave so much, our side won. The soldiers and their general knew what they were fighting for. She was the mother of our nation. Thank you for listening and telling your friends about the Calling History podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history.